Historically speaking, domestic and sexual violence has been seen as only a women's issue, but the reality is survivors and perpetrators can be any gender. This is why Speak Your Truth Today, Men Healing, Male Survivor, and Forge have partnered together to bring awareness to the realities male survivors face by launching the very first Male Survivor Awareness Day on October 25th, 2022. And while we do have the General Sexual Assault Awareness Month in April and Domestic Violence Awareness Month in October, violence specifically against women is usually the focus. We seek to expand beyond the binary. With staggering rates and even fewer resources, male survivors deserve to be supported, heard, safe, and loved. On today's podcast, you will hear from our amazing partners around the importance of awareness, learn about the rates of violence, and hear more about the barriers male, transgender, and non-binary survivors face. We can all take steps to make our spaces more supportive and inclusive to all survivors. Welcome partners. I'm thrilled you're joining us today in honor of the first ever National Male Survivor Awareness Day. Let's start with introductions. My name is Kara. I use the she, her pronouns, and I am a program manager with Speak Your Truth today. Um, Jim, would you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Jim Struve. I'm the executive director of Men Healing. Uh, he, him, his. My name and is Timothy Duval Brown. Uh, I am a social media manager at Men Healing, and I use he, him pronouns. And Nathan, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I'd love to. My name is Nathan Lachine. I'm one of the board of director members for Male Survivor. I use he, him, his pronouns. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, Michael, will you introduce yourself, please? Hey, everybody. Um, I'm Michael Munson. I am Forge's executive director, and Forge is a 28-year-old national trans anti-violence organization. Excellent. And I did forget to include this in what I'd like your introduction to be, but I'd like you to kind of highlight one program from your organization that's really something you want to share with our listeners and our support group members. So we'll go backwards and start with Michael. Great, thanks. Um, so when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about what, what do we highlight because we don't exactly work on a program-based thing. So I was thinking about what might be of interest to folks. And I think that uh, for us, we do a lot of collaborative work. And we know that um, trans people experience intimate partner violence at extremely high rates. So about one in two trans folks um, have experienced intimate partner violence. Um, so higher than like the NISBIS study that says like 29% of straight men, 26% of gay men, and 37% of, of bi men. So we wanna make sure that um, there's trans content into a lot of things that mainstream providers have access to. So um, when we look at things, we do um, work a lot with like the International Association of Forensic Nurses, the End Violence Against Women International has women in the title, but they do all gender work, um, Just Attention International, folks like that. And so um, I don't know how much time you'd like us to spend, but I've got a couple of examples of those collaborative pieces. Yeah, that would um, be wonderful. Five to seven minutes, go ahead and I'll edit that part yeah. out. So and if we take a little longer, that's fine. I don't want you to cut short on some of the things you guys wanna say. So feel free to ramble if you will, because this is very important. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so the three examples that I wanted to share of kind of the collaborative work that we do, and again, this is like where we can make sure that trans folks are interjected into what people are seeing um, as providers. So there's three examples. So the first one is that we work with um, and, and Violence Against International and Violence Against Women International on their virtual practicum. They have this huge um, 
educational module system of looking at individual uh, cases of strangulation, sexual assault, different types of violence. And they come at it from multiple um, kind of perspectives about what kind of providers may look at um, when they're accessing that patient or that client. And so we were asked to work with them to create a trans masculine patient. And um, it walks literally through that exam process and the decisions and the barriers that happen. So um, I encourage folks to look at it. It's a really interesting um, scenario, both the scenario itself, but then it has a director's cut. So it's got some overlays that kind of explain what's going on so that providers can get more information and then it links to resources. So like that's one example out of um, one scenario out of probably I think 15 or 16 that they have in what? their curriculum. So that's like one of the really cool places where trans content then gets added to a mix of things. Um, another example where we've collaborated is with the International Association of Forensic Nurses. And um, as many folks know, they have a national sexual assault protocol for both adults and for pediatrics. And Forge was able to be um, in on the editing and creating of both of those and making sure that there was trans content throughout each of those protocols. So that's kind of like the Bible for forensic nurses, yeah. both those documents. They just received funding um, a couple of years ago to do an intimate partner violence protocol. And so it's not, it's being approved right now by the Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women. But we played a really essential role in that, as did a lot of other partners from marginalized communities. So that partnership, again, brings trans content throughout this mainstream um, piece. Third example, um, again, I'm not just like mentioning what Forge has done, but these are all Forge examples. Um, but Equitas, who has a sub-program for stalking uh, awareness and prevention, decided that they wanted to do a safety planning guide, not just about intimate partner violence, but about stalking and um, safety planning for stalking victims. And this was a guide that was for LGB and T folks. So um, we made sure that there was ample T as well as the lesbian, gay, and bi folks. So yeah. when I think about programs, I think about how we've collaborated and how that makes a difference in kind of the global world of those who are working in intimate partner violence. I love that. Thank you for sharing those. I do have one question. The very first one you talked about, um, you told the listeners to go watch. Where can they watch that? Um, if you go to the Ivawi website, so I believe it's evawi.org, and then forward slash VP is in virtual practicum. It's okay. free. Um, Office on Violence Against Women made it free. It's usually um, all of the other ones are at cost, but um, this okay. one's free and it's it's really quite an interesting set of, of resources. Perfect. I'll make sure to include that in the episode a description. Thank you so much, Michael. That is incredible. And I'm so honored to have you here. Um, now we're going to switch over to Nathan. And if you could talk a little bit about your organization, some of the great things you guys are doing. Oh, gosh, now I got to follow up somebody like Michael. <laughs> uh, well, MaleSurvivor.org is uh, probably one of the largest and uh, has been around a long time. We've uh, just celebrated 27 years of uh, being a nonprofit. So the big thing that Male Survivor really has been focusing on for most of our uh, existence is providing direct services to underserved populations. So currently we're serving um, roughly 15 to 16,000 survivors, family and friends, and uh, parents are actually on our uh, discussion boards 
we serve men from over 220 different countries on an annual basis. So a lot of what we do is geared directly towards them. So we've broken down our forms to cover everything from LGBTQ survivors to military survivors to uh, abuse within, uh, you know, religious settings and really trying to support our uh, community. So it's really an amazing, you know, kind of a growth because everything we've done, we start out with just a couple of forms and a couple of topics. And we're now averaging 100, 150, 200 new uh, responses on a daily basis. And wow. since we've organically grown to support the survivors has been just empowering. We've branched off into having our own 24-7 uh, uh, chat room as well. That's been uh, really popularly received. We redesigned everything to be uh, from a mobile perspective because our largest growth factors have been in South America, Middle East, and the African continent. And what do we know about those? That's where internet is coming, but it's primarily mobile-based. Men don't yeah. have services in these countries. Even women don't have services in these countries. So where, how do we reach you where you are? And that's when we redesigned the website. We've redesigned our chat programs. Everything we do is designed to actually be from a mobile phone screen perspective to support our survivors. We relaunched our supportive facilitated uh, chat rooms that we do on a weekly basis. And that's been incredibly powerful for men that are not ready to actually go potentially to an in-person meetings or a retreat or even seek out a therapist at this point. And it's really, it's a topic driven conversations where we really are working on motivational interviewing techniques with our survivors and encourage them. What would you like to do? What kind of changes are you wanting to see in your own life? And just encouraging them on a weekly basis to make those next steps. Whether they make those next steps or not, it's immaterial. It is about them having that camaraderie and knowing that they are not alone. A lot of our new survivors have really benefited from being able to see the 20 plus years of posts because somebody might come on there and go, oh my gosh, look at Nathan, he's so put together. Well, you can go back 20 years to when I came to the site and some of those same questions new survivors are having, they can see, oh my gosh, Nathan came here, had these exact same questions. And you get to kind of see my growth over the 20 years and other survivors as well. That's been incredibly powerful for survivors to know they are not only not alone, there's a strong community behind them, but also that a lot of these same questions they're having and challenges, others have already faced, others have walked together with it. And really showing that just camaraderie has been one of the most powerful benefits to male survivor. Org. We also launched our webinars and recovery series, and that's where we had uh, focus facilitated conversations with authors, researchers to highlight some of the work that we've done with like Yale University and safe mentoring and different programs that we've partnered with. But more importantly, it gives the community the opportunity to actually talk with all of us board of director members, ask us, hey, what's going on with the organization? What are we looking at for the next six months? What are the new projects? And that has really kept us, you know, very grounded that we are, you know, a grassroots campaign that hasn't lost touch with, you know, the community and we're very much community focused and driven. So it's been a, a phenomenal uh, partnership with everyone. We've really expanded into the educational field this last 18 months, as we know with COVID, uh, we were planning another colloquium and COVID hit, our world has changed. So that's where we shifted to the webinars of recovery. When we started that program, we were getting uh, requests from local crisis clinics, local service providers, uh, specifically uh, the advocates that work in the legal settings because more male victims are coming forward. So we had a partnership with the Michigan Prosecuting Attorneys Association last year. We actually did a, a one 
one day seminar with them to educate all of the prosecuting attorneys in the entire state of Michigan and the advocates that work with male victims on how do you work with male victims? How, what are the correct terminologies to use? How do you start those conversations? How do you support them when you have to tell them is that you might not be able to go after a person criminally, but you do have other civil options. How do you empower that victim to feel that they can make that change and move forward? So those are really what we've been focusing on. A lot of uh, college campuses have reached out to us for curriculum updates and just how do we support because, you know, we always talk about, especially on college campuses, you know, they'll always have that, you know, date rape. They'll always have those, you know, concerns for females that are on campus. Okay, well, male victims can be sexually assaulted and can be in domestic violence situations too. So how do we help support and educate our male victims where they're still, even in higher institutions, we are still those unknown victims. We don't discuss male victims. So it's been really empowering to see that colleges and universities are really reaching out and including in their domestic violence and uh, college campus safety trainings that they want to have information and even have us present at several of their campuses to talk about safety within relationships for male uh, for males, and especially within our LGBTQIA plus community. Um, unfortunately, that, that is one segment that does have domestic violence at higher rates, and it's not talked about again in the curriculum. So that is one of the, you know, focuses is on education for male survivor. I love that. That was a lot of information, and I'm super excited to know a little bit more about you guys. I read a lot of it on the website, but I hear it different when it's coming from you. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I have found that we are trying to spotlight a survivor a day for all of October and the male survivors are struggling to come forward and we've had some come forward, but they've rescinded their, um, their stories because they're still afraid and not quite ready. And I'm hoping things like this podcast and all the great work all of you guys are doing will eventually make men feel completely comfortable, you know, just being open about it and knowing that it's not their fault. So just, I wanted to share that with you, that your work is very important. All of your work is very important. So thank you. All right, now we're gonna switch back over to Jim and Timothy. I'm not sure who wants to speak for men healing, but I will just turn it over to both of you and let you, you know, go ahead. I'll go ahead and step in. Uh, what you were just saying is kind of a segue to some of our work that um, after all these years uh, of working with male sexual victimization, men and male identified individuals are still very reluctant to step forward, very reluctant to um, reach out for services to, to be public. One of the things that we're really working on is trying to increase visibility for survivors and making it safer uh, by providing role models and examples of people who can speak out and tell their story. And a couple of things about our orientation, um, we're focusing on hope and healing as a way to inspire survivors to uh, realize, I think there's a big perception that when survivors step forward to get help, get involved with the mental health system, it's kind of a downward spiral and things come apart. And we're trying to uh, really illustrate, demonstrate, model that quite the opposite is true, is that when people have the courage and the ability to get resources, uh, life can thrive and there can be lots of joyful changes in happening. Our, our, our tagline for our organization is um, um, creating hope and inspiring change. Um, Love that. So the same kind of thing of getting that out there. We, uh, one of our flagship programs is uh, Weekends of Recovery, which is an opportunity for male survivors to come together in person uh, and do uh, healing together. 
And what we've learned through those, we just finished our 94th uh, weekend um, wow. Back in September. And what we've learned over those those uh, experiences is that the primary takeaway that the men have when they come to a weekend is connection with other men, um, ending or decrease in isolation and beginning to become part of a community. Um, so that's been huge is to be begin to build this identification with the community. And so therefore, part of our thrust is to not just be putting out services to people, but building a movement for change. We really want to uh, make this a movement uh, to do it. And like what Michael and, and Nathan were, were both talking about, one of our big thrusts is collaboration, not trying to do all the work ourselves. Where can we partner? Where can we work together? And that seems also so important as men's organizations, men being willing to collaborate and cooperate, not trying to build an empire, not trying to do everything alone. Um, so most of our programs, we really lean towards trying to find partnerships and do things together with other organizations. Um, another thing that's probably important for our, our orientation is that then um, the last five years, especially, we really geared towards with trying to make male sexual victimization more visible through telling your stories, through the power of story. We be, we've started to make videos. We have over 70 videos now we've produced uh, at free access at our website um, to help model all sorts of variations of men stepping forward and telling their stories. Most of them are like two to six minute videos or short. They're free access through our website and through YouTube. But again, it's um, putting out in the world examples of what happens when people seek help uh, and, and get help. Um, we've done a couple of projects, uh, workshopping or coaching survivors to tell their stories uh, of their hope and healing. We did one collaboration with uh, Forge uh, to uh, feature trans and non-binary survivors to be able to tell. Very creative, very innovative. All those are posted on our website as well to, to access. And then just lastly, what I would say is that we're also really focusing on dynamics of intersectionality. And especially when we're dealing with um, underserved populations, so many survivors aren't single issue um, kind of work to do. There's so much that intersects, precedes, and that's kind of where it overlaps with this here. Um, a survivor of sexual victimization may have also grown up in a home where there was lots of domestic violence, intimate partner violence. They might've been in relationships where they were again victimized uh, as a partner. So it's important that we really don't deal with sexual victimization for men as a single issue. It's a multiplicity. Uh, factors that are there. And then as well, adults are victimized as well as children. And that's where it really begins to intersect with um, the focus of your organization. And as adults, people may get into relationships where they again get um, the power dynamics get uh, scrambled around and they become a victim as an adult as well. Yeah, Our website, I... I encourage people to, to come visit menhealing.org. There's lots of resources there. Our events we do all over the country. Um, we have lots of followers through our social media, which Timothy can speak about, which is really growing from um, all sorts of other countries beyond just the U.S. That's wonderful. I'll go ahead and ask Timothy a question now that you brought that up. Um, do you have any social media interactive 
um, experiences or engagements with the followers and community that you have with Men Healing, Timothy? Yeah, so one of our biggest focuses right now in sort of our very small but mighty social media team is um, really connecting with folks um, and building sort of a virtual community um, that kind of mirrors and represents what Jim was just talking about, right? The hope and healing part, the, um, the, the part of us living lives that are, I don't wanna say, maybe, maybe like beyond, uh, our identity as survivors, right? Or showing that we are incorporating our identity as survivors in our everyday life. Um, so we've been doing some groundwork to grow our following. Um, we have uh, gotten some new followers from some uh, events that we've done, um, some really exciting content that we're working on. And we are doing things like collaborating with some other organizations that sounds like it's been a theme sort of in everyone's answer so far um, but collaborating with some other organizations that um, can support the work that we do and just sort of help folks feel like when they when they come across us when they come across our community um, there there is something for them there's someone for them to talk to there's someone who can relate to them um, and that's that's really exciting work to be doing right now I do love that. Um, you know, the way of the future is is social media and the fact that you're putting such a presence on that and knowing that that's an avenue that folks want to take to healing is very amazing. Um, I think it's wonderful. I didn't have that when I was younger, so I really like that there are non-in-person ways um, to connect with a community who's going through what you're going through. So thank you, Timothy, for sharing that. Michael, what are some of the barriers facing trans men Transmasculine and non-binary survivors. Great question, and we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about this question, um, just <laughs> like all of the like. questions. <laughs> right, just you know, we're just going to take five or six minutes. Um, so, when I was thinking about this, um, I think some of the things just to kind of lay the groundwork as a preface is that trans folks experience more adverse childhood experiences. So that both kind of lays the framework of there's more violence that happens in childhood um, for trans folks. And it also kind of primes the pump for future health-related issues in adulthood and more victimization. Um, we don't have to talk about stats. Um, I can send you some links about um, some webinars that we've done that show more detail about ACEs and uh, trans folks. But some of the other barriers that are more kind of tangential are the, the violence against women paradigm, which was a really useful paradigm in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But you know, right now, when we realize that violence happens against all gender of folks, when the dominant paradigm still is that violence happens against women, it really erases anybody who's masculine, any men, any non-binary people. So that's just kind of what's going out there in the world. Related to that is because of what happened in the, in the 70s, again, great emergence of feminism and support groups and responses to violence against women. We still have all of the support groups that are geared towards, oriented towards women as survivors. So, you know, men healing, male survivor, other places are having more groups and more places for men, but they're still the minority. So, you know, when trans folks get into the mix, we've got people who may not identify as male or female. So, you know, do trans men feel comfortable 
in a male-only space. Some do, some don't. Um, do some trans women who have been assaulted and abused as children when they were presenting as boys feel comfortable in pick the gendered space? So those gendered spaces are really big barriers for a lot of um, trans folks. Another barrier is that when we look at intimate partner violence with trans folks, a lot of times people see what's happening in their relationship as normal. So they have not been educated in the same ways. They're not, they're not being taught that, you know, boys hurt girls, not that girls can hurt boys or that boys can hurt boys. So they're only getting that one message about violence against women growing up. So they may also, you know, take in some of the messages of their partners who are being abusive. And some of those can be trans-specific tactics, which are like, well, I'm gonna out you at work if you don't do X, Y, and Z, or you're not a real man because you know you were assigned female at birth. So some of those tactics play a role in kind of minimizing what happens or just making people think, well, this is just normal. This is a normal relationship rather than you know, something that's abusive. One of the things that we see as, as a really big barrier, um, and these kind of go together, there's two things that go together. Um, the first one is this really old concept of master status or the label of primary potency. So these were terms and concepts that came up in the 1940s and 1950s. And it's basically saying that one characteristic about somebody determines and identifies and defines who they are. So this was created out of a, in a, in a race-based context of like, so, oh, you're black, so therefore you must have all of these things that are associated with being black. So that concept can transfer and apply to trans folks. So if a trans folk, you know, trans person goes in for uh, psychotherapy and the therapist says, oh, you've disclosed that you're trans, that then is gonna, for a lot of therapists, create the, oh, well, that caused you to be sexually assaulted. That caused you to be in a violent relationship. And it also then creates this, this scenario where providers are gonna be asking inappropriate questions. They're gonna be asking questions about somebody's transness, not about what they came in for, which might be an abusive relationship. So that kind of master status label of primary potency then kind of links into the secondary part of that, which is just the, the general cultural incompetence um, or the culture, lack of cultural humility, lack of um, trauma-informed trans-specific knowledge. So we can have providers or groups that are really good at trauma, but not really good at trans things, or really good at trans things, but not really good at trauma. So that that educational piece really needs to continue happening, um, and it's probably you know it's it's not a one and done thing. So people can have one training and that's not enough. So how do we continue to move that forward um, into providers' lives and into the trans communities' lives? So that they can help recognize and say, hey, well, that's, you know, it sounds like you might be in an abusive relationship. Do you want to talk about that? Um, a couple of other things um, that come to mind for, for common barriers are, um, one is kind of the dual relationship that a lot of trans folks have to mental health providers. So if someone is seeking mental health care for the intimate partner violence that they've experienced, that trans person may be really aware that that provider holds the key to their access to hormones or surgery. Um, because we live in a world that is dictated by standards of care. And a lot of times physicians require a letter from a therapist in order to access basic trans medical care. So we know that a lot of uh, trans masculine folks, trans feminine folks are having two therapists, one that they talk about their trans stuff and one that they
talk about their trauma stuff. And that, I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about that too, right? About what harm that does to literally dissociate and have two different types of um, relationships. But if trans people are afraid that they're not going to get a letter and that's really important to them in their life, they may not disclose some of those things. And I may have just frozen. Um, You're good. Oh. You froze up, but your voice did not. So we're good. Perfect. Um, so the other piece of that kind of dual relationship is that a lot of times trans people think that they need to be a good client. Um, they need to put a good foot forward because trans people are stigmatized in a lot of ways. So, you know, I can't admit, admit in big quotes, to being a survivor because that doesn't make me a good trans person. So that's just another one of those kind of complicating factors of like, who, who do I disclose to, whether it's a peer or a professional? And then the last piece that um, I'll share for, for right now is this, again, a dual concept of gaps in education that's happening, especially right now, where in our culture, we've got a lot of political stuff going on. And this is not, I don't wanna be partisan in this, but we've got a lot of books that are being banned from um, you know, middle school and high school libraries and, and grade schools. And those young adult books specifically like with trans characters show healthy relationships a lot of times. And they're being pulled from libraries. Their sex education that relates to gender identity or sexual orientation is being stripped out of that educational system. So trans folks are, are not getting exposed to um, positive relationships in books, um, positive um, you know, sexual health and relationship health in those relationship curriculums. And then they're being surrounded by our culture, which says, you trans people are bad, evil freaks. You don't deserve to be human. And we're going to put your parents in jail, your physicians in jail. We're going to come after you next. And that's a really scary place for trans folks to be. And so that may be the pervasive fear that trans folks are living under. And they may not even be able to think about the intimate partner violence that's happening in their life right now. So that was an end on a really big, sad, scary thing. But that's that's what our world That's is. That's the right. reality that that yeah. they're facing. Um, we did share a, a story of a trans woman, um, Michelle. I don't know if you got a chance to read that story. She um, had a relationship with um, a man and it ended very terribly. She was um, beat and she left that night. I'm summary, summarizing this very quickly. And she went to a woman's shelter and she was covered in bruises and blood and they looked at her and asked her why she was there. And she said, I need help. And they just flat out asked her, what's between your legs? And that was many years ago, but that's unacceptable. And I would hope that it has changed, but listening to you, a lot of that has not changed. And then I had another um, friend of mine, a trans man who wanted to submit a story, but then wasn't quite comfortable, so he pulled it, but he's tried multiple times to go to counseling for the intimate partner violence he went through, and every time he finds a counselor, the minute they find out he's trans, they want to fix that. That's not, the, that's not a broken thing, and so I love that your message explains the barriers facing this population, and it's not going away, so we need to be there for them. So thank you for that. I'm getting choked up because just remembering those stories were really hard for me to even capture, let alone talk about. But if you have not read them, those are giving you very detailed examples 
of two of the barriers that they face today. So thank you for sharing that. Okay, we're gonna go to Jim. Um, can you talk a little bit about disguised victimization? Well, that probably overlaps with some of the barriers. Um, I think one of the things that is very common and unfortunately very prevalent, um, our culture is based on a um, paradigm or lens we see through that women are victims, men are offenders uh, or men are aggressors. So therefore, when, um, when men step forward and um, disclose that they have been victimized, therapists, professionals, family can't really get their heads around the fact that that could be possible. Um, so therefore, that's kind of the isolation and the and the aloneness uh, that, that happens for male survivors. It's very invisible because we can't people can't get their lens through seeing that. What that does is um, many men just choose not to step forward. So many men uh, spend lots of time disguising that they have been victimized, finding other coping strategies for dealing with it. And one of the things that's very striking, um, the research validates that most male survivors uh, may take up to 20 years before they I read to, that. Uh, to disclose their victimization. That's a long time to be dealing with compensating behaviors or compensating for life uh, and, the, and the invisibility uh, that happens. Um, so it's interesting how, how men may find interesting ways to dissociate by getting overly involved in work overly involved in um, recreational activities, overly involved with substances, alcohol, uh, whatever, because those uh, are more socially acceptable ways to lose yourself, but it's basically dissociation uh, for, a lot of, uh, for a lot of people. Um, just kind of bleeding over into your question that you're asking with Michael before, um, I think some of the barriers that become relevant to your question is, uh, male socialization lends itself that men can't be traumatized. Uh, even if it's acknowledged that men may have had a victimizing experience, the assumption is that it probably wasn't traumatic. The assumption is that men can just get over it. The assumption is boys aren't hurt the same way uh, the girls might be. So we have this distorted image from a very young age that boys, uh, male identified individuals can take care of themselves and don't need the help. And then secondly, that bleeds into uh, the assumption that men in any situation, whether it's intimate partner violence or sexual victimization, men must be the aggressor, men must be the offender. And that bleeds over into men who have been victimized will become offenders. Very distorted untruth, uh, but it's prevalent in the culture. And so many people, so many men who are victimized have real, um, scrambling or confusion about personal identity. Who am I? Because it doesn't fit all the paradigms of maleness. And therefore that bleeds into the unfortunate cultural stereotype um, that gays are the perpetrators, or if you are victimized as a male, you'll become uh, not straight. Yes, uh, I so hear that one a lot. Guys. Yes, but those are all untruths. They're stereotypes that the culture keeps uh, perpetuating uh, and it keeps being there. And we also have the myth that uh, sexual abuse only happens to children. Intimate partner violence um, 
and sexual victimization are kind of out of our range of vision. So that I know lots of situations where a male may report, I was victimized as an adult, I was a partner uh, who was uh, victimized, and the police or whoever's coming in still will not deal with uh, what it means to say I'm a victim because you can't get your mind around the fact that a male could be uh, could be in that position. Um, so we have all those things uh, f floating around that become both barriers and they become reasons why men step back and choose not to deal directly with their experience. It's unfortunately, and I'm a survivor myself, and one of the things that I know when I first began, began to disclose my victimization to other people, friends or professionals, two assumptions were made. One is it assumed immediately, oh, you're probably gay. Okay, I hadn't come out as gay then, yet I was gay. I just hadn't been safe to come out yet. But that had nothing to do with my victimization. That did not make me gay. And then no, secondly, you were victimized and you're gay, but that's not, be yes. Yeah, and then secondly, people who were even friends who I was involved with their family, all of a sudden pulled their children back because are our children gonna be safe with you now that we know you're a victim? And that kind of pulling away, uh, that's in the air. And as a male survivor, you feel that and those kind of things become both barriers and reasons to disengage um, because when people make those assumptions, uh, after they maybe have known you for a long time. I, I remember my own experience. I had had a bunch of close relationships with families where there was a child, was very engaged. After I disclosed my victimization, that became more superficial. People did not want me alone around their children. Um, that's the experience is so unfortunately common. If you have a partner who there was intimate partner violence, then people say, well, I guess you can't protect yourself, um, et cetera. Or, or you must be just trying to make an excuse for your behavior. And it really, um, you were the aggressor, not the victim. So there's, there's so many of those things that are floating around that we have to untangle. And we have to do a lot of systems change to make it safe for us to deal with men and male identified individuals as victims. Yes, that it's heartbreaking to hear because when you say you're a survivor yourself, all I give is empathy. I think, oh, I'm sorry you had to go through that and I hope you've healed. I can't imagine, and now you're not allowed to see my child. I, I don't, yeah. in my brain, it doesn't compute. So. Yes. The fact that it goes there in someone else's brain is heartbreaking. I'm looking at the PowerPoint slides that you shared with us. And um, I noticed that your disguised vic victimization section talked about all male associations, relying on hazing rituals. Can you talk a little bit about that part of it and kind of talk, just explain what that is. Um, and if you wanna just go through those slides, that's fine. We'll share this if you're willing to allow us to. but. I don't think people realize that the way society thinks in some of these we're, we're allowing or we're fostering um, the behavior as opposed to teaching difference. So I'll turn it back over to you, Jim. Well, I think the, I think the common denominator through those are that within our, our paradigm of male culture, uh, lots of all male associations uh, or ones that are predominantly male associated have built-in hazing or uh, initiation rituals. Uh, whether it's the Boy Scouts, whether it's fraternities, whether it's military, whatever, lots of males are put through hazing or uh, initiation rituals. And many of those are frequently highly sexualized, 
forcing um, men or boys to dress up as females, having them perform sexual acts or having sexual acts performed on them. And what's unfortunate is that a lot of people in those situations never perceive that that was sexual abuse, sexual victimization, sexual violation. And people on the outside fall back on, well, that's just our tradition. We've always done that. Or the people that were the victims turn around and then they have to do it to the next uh, uh, level that comes in. There's so much built into the structure within those kind of associations. Um, and so that's, that's very, very dangerous um, to do. And another place where it shows up is the, the frequency that the, when, if the offender is a female, for example, in a school setting, you may have a teacher, a school worker who begins to um, be sexually inappropriate with an adolescent male. And frequently it's that, well, the boy was coming on to me, what could I do? Or in the paper, it's, it's framed as a inappropriate sexual relationship, but they won't use the word uh, sexual abuse. Uh, whereas if it was an adult male teacher and a female student, the language would be, would be completely differently. Um, and unfortunately, I have so many examples of where I know of, of men I've worked with who as adolescents um, or very young adults got involved with adult women and there was a very inappropriate abusive relationship and family and others knew what was going on, were aware of it, and nobody stepped in to do any intervention because, you know, they thought again, it was okay. Yeah. And the whole idea in our culture, well, I, boys will be boys. And it's kind of scoring, so to speak, if you have that opportunity uh, to do all those kind of myths really have to be debunked, changed. We have to take a different ethical stand on all those issues before we can really change the climate. I would completely agree with that. Um, and so I completely agree. We need to change the culture and society and the norms across the board. Um, and I really, I agree with when they're growing up boys aren't allowed to cry. Boys aren't allowed to express their feelings. They're not allowed to say that hurt me. You just suck it up. You know, what are you, a girl? And those comments are both bad for boys, girls, and anyone else because we're, we're making it like it's a bad thing to be one or the other. Thank you so much, Jim. Okay, Nathan. I've read some male survivor stories where they felt they had to learn how to view themselves as a man again. And I say man in quotes, basically rebuilding their own identity and masculinity. What are your thoughts on having to reimagine masculinity after experience domestic violence or sexual assault? Kind of everybody here has touched on this is that our, you know, our society really has kind of a, a toxic masculinity culture in it. And that where we view, you know, boys and you know male identifying as well you should always be that knight in shining armor you should always go down fighting you should always xyz and that becomes very challenging because how does a man then associate well if everything in society says i should always be that you know dominant person but i, I was also a victim there's great studies out there especially about um you know the masks that boys wear and really looking at is that a lot of boys when you actually talk with them especially youth that are um, incarcerated and youth that have you know the quote unquote you know they're the ones that get suspended for fighting from school when you actually talk with them a lot of them are actually sad depressed and angry and hurt but 
as boys get older, as we go from elementary school to middle school and to high school, we start losing relationships and friends with our peers because we're not able to connect. Our society doesn't allow us to connect as we should. We, you know, we feminize and give, you know, gender specific, oh, well, that's, that's a feminine trait if you're crying or if you're being emotional, yes. or, you know. Um, we, you know, have an incredibly negative connotation that we use and we, you know, we'll tell, you know, guy, don't be a pussy, you know, and it's like, yes. how do we demonize when we're showing our emotions? Because you know what, we're all human beings. We all have emotions. We all come into this world with the same set of emotional needs, but yet we will actually encourage for male babies to, you know, let them, you know, not, they can just cry themselves to sleep. They don't need this for, you need to, you know, stop babying them. Okay, well, you know what? We all could use a little more hugging and babying, right? So yes. in our society then, when I'm a victim, what shows do you see that I can be a victim in? What, you know, I think, you know, Michael was really talking about, and I shared in a uh, chat with Michael that it really hit home for me growing up is that I grew up in a rural community. There were no books on LGBTQIA+. There was no literature of what an LGBTQ relationship could look like. I didn't know what a gay relationship looked like, what a gay, successful, happy male could be. And when you take away my ability to see myself and project myself into the future, that is another trauma. So all I see as a man is, oh, well, you should be the, the one who always is a strong, dominant person. I was now victimized. Well, how does my, in our societal view, how do I equate that I'm still a man and I still have my masculinity, but I was a victim? Fellow peers that I, you know, had and when I disclosed that I was a victim, you know, myself, they would, you know, kind of immediately go to, ah, that explains why you're gay. You oh my know, God. I, I, I was like, you know, and they didn't mean any harm by it. They were some of my peers that I've known for, you know, 20 plus years, but I actually have that response from them. And to how do then you, you know, add that layer of, well, I'm part of the LGBTQIA plus community onto being traumatized and then everybody makes that assumption. Oh, well, yeah, you're abused, that's why you're gay. Totally makes sense now, problem solved. And, you know, Michael, you know, articulated that so well of that, you know, that happens of like, well, you get this one label and now that's, oh, that explains your entire life. That, that, that's the, that is all of Nathan's dimensions of identity. And that's what happens for a lot of our male victims is that, you know, they were told by other peers, oh man, I would go down fighting. Oh, if somebody tried to do this to me, I would rather die than submit. Okay, well, you know what, if you've never lived those situations, you don't know what you're going to do and what you do to survive and how you survive those situations, you know, makes it very challenging for men to come forward. You know, a lot, we don't have appropriate sexual education within our school systems. And we definitely don't talk about men being victims of sexual abuse within our school system. We don't talk about safety. We still have this erroneous thought process of stranger danger. That's, you know, where it's really going to be. That's the person with the van and that's X, Y, Z. That happens less than one to 3% of cases but yet that's what we still are training our kids. We don't talk to our kids about appropriate boundaries for their bodies. When Jim was discussing, you know, several of his topics, one of the things that was raining true for me is that it is so pervasive that even in our legal system, male victims face challenges. We had a male advocate that I worked with that asked a 15, was going to ask a 15 year old uh, gay identifying youth, well, what was your level of involvement when the 25 year old female was molesting you? And this is a victim advocate for the state. Men get asked, well, did you lead them on? Did you do X, Y, Z? We would never ask that of a female survivor. 
yeah, that's inappropriate beyond belief. They are a minor. Nothing they did caused any of that, but that's still going on. And well, and that's that toxicity that now permeates yeah. our legal system. Look at when my generation, I grew up in the Mary Kay Laterno situations here in Washington State. That was a sixth grade teacher sleeping with a sixth grade male student. Yeah. She got probation several times and then kept reoffending with him. And it took several violations before she actually went to jail. I vividly remember being in the locker room around my wrestling friends in the football team and guys like, man, I wish I had in sixth grade, I would have been able to sleep with my teacher. Mm -hmm. No, you don't. But that's that toxic masculinity that we have in our society. Yeah. And, and they also it. just put out a, a show on one of the true crime things that we didn't know the whole Mary story. I can never pronounce her last name, but we don't know her whole story. It was really a love story. What? no adult child and so I was shocked that even now they're still trying to tote it in that way mm -hmm. well and Jim touched on it too is that when you see even news articles you will see that it's inappropriate sexual relationship um, under age or underage prostitute you do not see men referred to as you know a rape victim or this was sexual abuse of a minor, sexual molestation. You do not see within the LGBTQI plus community, you will have this, oh, well, you know, they're just, they have a higher sex drive. So, you know, they kind of put themselves out there. They put themselves in this danger. And, you know, uh, if you didn't want to get teased and bullied and assaulted in school, you should just keep your LGBTQI plusness out of who you are. You know, our youth report, you know, LGBTQI plus youth report higher victimization rates within the school systems. They report, you know, never hearing positive supportive messages about who you wow. are. And when our culture keeps beating you down, and then I am now a victim, the culture says this, what do I have to hold on to? And I think that's the challenging part for especially male victims coming forward, and especially part of the LGBTQI plus community of how do I rebuild, you know, my quote unquote masculinity of who I am when being sexually abused took something away from me. I can't discuss it with my friends. The crisis clinics that are around here were all almost all geared for females. Yeah, we'll take some male victims in, but we have no male advocates. We don't have trainings. You throw on being part of the LGBTQIA plus community. You really have no trainings. How do I now reconsolidate who is a man? Who is Nathan? Who am I supposed to be? Yeah, and that's where that connection with other survivors becomes so important because it, it's it's a lifelong journey that we are walking to identify who we are, to identify, you know, and not listen to the society that's around us that is giving us toxic and negative messages at a consistent rate. We did have a story of, I, I believe it was our survivor spotlight. His name was Mitch. And he was, um, he was in a heterosexual relationship and was being abused by the woman he was with, but he didn't notice it because he didn't think as a man he could be because that's what society thought. And his friends actually pointed out something's not right about her. And then he dug deeper and deeper. And once he realized that she actually admitted, yes, I manipulate you with sex. And this is obviously a less intense story than some of the ones we're sharing. He said, all of a sudden I felt violated but am I allowed to feel violated as a man? And that stayed with me because I know him personally and he still to this day struggles because other men will say, you're mad that your wife wanted to have sex. 
that that's not the point. The point is she's using it as as a manipulation tactic, and that's violating it. So even now we minimize what they go through because of this version of men that we're supposed to have. And each story disgusts me more and more that it's happening to people. So bringing this to light, I just, I genuinely appreciate you guys and your time. So um, I know I cut you off. Was there anything else you wanted to add to that comment, Nathan, or do you wanna? I, I would just add is that on Males Forever, we actually have an entire forum dedicated to adult male victims that were sexually abused as adults because there is a lot of this, you know, misunderstandings. And then it comes out of those violations of what's been done to you, the hazing rituals. Mm -hmm. As, you know, as Jim pointed out, that's one of those is that a lot of them have sexual, you know, overtures or are downright sexual molestation or even sexual rape. Yes. You know, I, I grew up and I was a wrestler and just a couple of years ago, it came out that a high school wrestling team was sodomizing the freshmen with broom handles. Oh. And the school had known about this. This was their tradition of hazing. Wow. And, it, you know, it, you had all of these boys that were then sexually abusing each other. And, you know, the culture is, oh, well, it's just, again, that toxic boys will be boys. Boys mm -hmm. are more sexual. They're just being, you know, doing It'll something. Make them tougher. Exactly. And, you know, it's not, the unfortunate thing is, is, as Jim pointed out, is that it can be 20, 30 years before male victims come forward. And we then try to overcompensate for our masculinity by well, society says I should work 80 hour work weeks or, hey, you know what? Society says if I'm having an emotional problem, I should go drink. Oh, society says I should go do drugs or I should go do X, Y, Z. You know, we but where does our societal messages in either our literature, our music, our medias show men sitting down having a conversation? If I want to sit down with Michael and Timothy, you're not going to see it in the average books and music of like, hey, you know, what, guys, I am suffering this week. It has been brutal. This is really, you know, and I can't you just don't see that in any of our literature and our social medias that men can have supportive conversations, because if I'm sitting down having a, you know, a good emotional and I'm starting to cry and talk about something immediately people are going to assume, oh, well, they're all just a bunch of gays. Oh, see, yeah. they're all just femi. See, they're all, but you know what? I am a human being yes. that is expressing my emotions, my needs to connect and to be heard and to be validated. That knows no gender. Yes. And as you were talking, I was thinking about all of the daily talk shows that I see out there. There's a lot of female panel talk shows that openly talk about their emotions and their feelings and their issues and traumas and stuff. But we don't have a single one where men are comfortable and allowed to do that because society doesn't want to acknowledge it. I don't know why it is, but it's really heartbreaking because how amazing would it be if they could see that on on a public television, here we are talking about it openly. So maybe it's okay if I do. Um, I hope one day that changes. That would be amazing. Kara, I'm wondering if I could add a little bit onto what Nathan just said, yeah. which, which perfectly, like, I think kind of links this in, which is, you know, I mean, Nathan, you said like, you know, what if we were sitting in a, you said a coffee shop or whatever, you know, it was you and me and Timothy and Jim or whatever. And, and, you know, could we have that open relay, you know, kind of open conversation where there might be tears, there might be like, man, I really had a hard week today, you know, this week. Um, and I think, I, I don't know you very well, but I'm guessing that we could have a conversation that involved that. Yes. And, you know, I know that I have tried to make an effort of kind of letting people see my relationships 
and see my vulnerability and and be there for other people that can. And you know, I know that's kind of like the the one person at a time, but I really think that you know when we see people in a coffee shop and you know there's a man there and you know and and they're he's talking with whoever else and there's that realness there, um, it it shifts it a little bit. You know, it's yeah. just that incremental change, and people will think, wow, you know, I, these look like normal people, and one person is emotional, and that's yes. okay. So like I just you know I, I I always am thinking about like how not to be strategic in that, but I think yeah. that those can be or are able to be emotional in public spaces, it really shifts that balance, especially not to be gendered, but like those of us who have big beards or have that traditional masculine look, um, it helps switch it even more. Cause it's like, oh, well, that's not one of those Femi people. Femi people can be emotional too, but yes. like, you know, it's different when people have that kind of really. Um, I, I appreciate that, that hopefully little things like that our listeners can take and be that open space and comfortable spot for someone to come and chat with and share their emotions and let the societal you know around them see to make the change so that's great um okay that guys in there, uh, that with us not allowed to do that the connections we're not allowed to make um as we're kind of sharing some personal stories, I had a good friend that I grew up with in high school. Neither one of us disclosed uh, to each other and we lost touch after 15 years. I did a social media post uh, looking for more foster parents. A person responded, knew a lot of my personal details. I'm like, who are you? How do you know these things about our, my high school and all of this? And it came out that I knew that I knew them before they transitioned. Oh. And we, you know, we're now caregivers together. We, you know, with the same organization and um, we try to go out on, you know, some monthly walks and just coffee. Um, you know, I'm in Washington state. So, you know, we're all coffeeaholics up here. Yes. But, um, <laughs> we honestly, we had a really good conversation. We really thought about um, how our lives maybe could have been different and more enriched if we had felt comfortable enough in our society within my community to, for them to say, Hey, I'm, exploring my soji you're exploring yours and have those conversations um and i think i've had a wonderful life but i do look back and you know that what if of what if our society allowed men to connect on these levels what if our society allowed us to be emotional what kind of relationships and how could i be a better nathan if you know i had been allowed in our society supported yes I, I like that now you can um now you're on a mission to make sure others feel that way and get that early. And I just, I'm very, like I said, I'm very honored to be a part of this conversation. I'd like each of you to share what you think the most important thing for a male, transmasculine, or non-binary survivor to hear is. Thanks for that question. Um, what is the most important thing for a survivor to hear? I think for men, it is really important to hear if you've been survivor, victim, survivor of any kind of domestic violence, whether that's sexual assault, intimate partner uh, violence, something happened to you. You're, you are not bad. You are not flawed. Someone did something to you. That's really important. So often male survivors absorb that there's something wrong with me. There's something defective with me. Unfortunately, there's an intersection with the mental health service system where so often survivors are diagnosed as PTSD and post-traumatic stress disorder. 
what's important is to consider taking the disorder out of the equation and reframing its post-traumatic stress injury. You are injured, something happened to you. Disorder implies you cannot recover. Disorder implies something is wrong with you. Injury, you can heal. And that leads to the other part of this message that survivors need to hear, hope is possible. There are resources, there are organizations like Men Healing, like Forge, like Male Survivor, who do provide services. Go to our websites, any of them. There are lots of resources there. They allow opportunities for networking. Uh, Men Healing has support groups. We offer uh, healing uh, events. We have videos of hope and healing. And for survivors to hear inspiration that change is possible, you can heal, uh, you can move through this, and there is joy in life after you begin your healing. So I hope survivors can take that together, and just by the courage of reaching out for help through one of our organizations, through a mental health provider, etc., to get connected with other people, to meet other survivors, to become part of a larger community, and that community is the people who are now thriving. Thanks for including me in this presentation, and uh, I hope that people listening to this podcast follow up and check out some of our resources. Take care. I think the first thing I ever wanted to hear was like, I love you and I'm here for you. Um, so I'll pass that on. Um, we love you. We're here for you. There are a lot of people out here um, who are on journeys that are similar to yours. Um, they might not look exactly the same, but um, there are a lot of us, you know, fighting the good fight. And we're excited to fight it together, I think, in my experience. I love that. And I think we do all need to hear I love you more. Um, and that we have support. So that is a, a beautiful answer, Timothy. Thank you. All right, Michael, what do you think the most important thing is? Um, I probably have a stream of things, um, depending <laughs> on, you know, who's in front of me, who's with me, who's, you know, who's around. But I think like Timothy was saying, it's like, you know, the I love you is good. That's not always receptive. But I mean, I probably would start with I believe you. We believe you. Um, what happened to you was real. Um, the current climate really sucks and it's really hard and it won't be this way forever. Um, you have a right to heal. You totally have a right to heal. You have a right to healthy, loving relationships if you want one or if you want many. Um, you don't have to do this alone. And we're here for you. I love that. Goosebumps again. So those are powerful statements. And I think that is a universal um, answer for anybody who wants to, as a survivor, I want to hear those things. So thank you for that. All right, Nathan, let's, let's close with you. Following up after um, both of these beautiful people have said such amazing supportive things. Um, I think it's really important for, sur for survivors to know that it, it wasn't their fault. They never wanted or asked for this to happen. And that we will be here to walk alongside this journey with you. That one made me cry. <laughs> So that is beautiful. So partners, I want to thank you for joining us today to bring awareness to male, transmasculine, and non-binary survivors and help us learn to be more supportive and inclusive.